Good evening. My, my aim was not to say good morning, uh, and so I've at least passed so far. I hope you guys have had a great Christmas. My name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I know we have some guests with us, so I'm glad you're here. Uh, t- tonight, um, after the service in here, if, if you don't have to rush off real fast, we're going to have snacks downstairs in Fellowship Hall. We'd love for you to stick around and fellowship a little bit before you take off. I'm sure some of you still have uh, other families you're going to go see tonight, um, but uh, we'd also love to have you back tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. if you're able to, to come. But I'm guessing uh, most of you, your traditions, it will be that tomorrow morning you'll be opening up gifts and Probably the anticipation of unwrapping those presents is about to do some of you in. Some of you kids, you, like, like you just can't wait for tomorrow morning, get to open up presents. I see some nods, exciting. Um, I remember growing up, my parents, they would put presents under the tree in early December, and we would just like stare at them for like days, uh, and it just made the waiting so much harder. Olivia, she's like, she just keeps the presents somewhere else, doesn't put them out until uh, the night before. Uh, and, and, and I remember just looking at those presents, just I would look at the shape of them and the height, the thickness, and try to like guess what was inside the package. Um, and, and just because you could see the package and you, know, you weren't allowed to open them, it, it made the month of December take forever. It just seems like it lasted forever. Um, and I'm convinced that December, like the days are just longer. They're longer than 24 hours, I think, in December because just waiting is so hard. Being patient is so hard. It's something that not many of us are very good at. The waiting around for Christmas Day seems like an eternity for a child. It's really hard to wait when you know that something great is coming. The better the gift, the, hard, the harder and longer it is uh, to wait. And with that in mind, I want us to turn to Genesis 3. You may be thinking, Genesis 3 for Christmas. Like, that doesn't sound like a Christmas passage. Uh, well, tomorrow morning will be in Matthew 1, a typical Christmas passage, but Genesis 3, it's beautiful. I think it's, uh, it's about Christmas morning. And so let's look at Genesis 3 tonight, starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, on the, in the dust uh, you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, tonight. We uh, thank you for Christmas, that you would send your very best to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I believe that Genesis 3, it's establishing Christmas Day. Genesis 3, we're told that a baby boy born from the family of Adam and Eve would come and destroy the serpent. And so now the wait begins. The wait would be much, much longer than, um, than what we wait um, from Thanksgiving to Christmas. Uh, you know, COVID, I think one of the good things with COVID, it taught us how to wait. Normal, everyday items that you would just go to the store or order, they were just no longer available. Um, You just couldn't go grab. Uh, Even today, we still see some of these effects. I was at Walmart earlier and could not find eggs. They were just gone, eggs. And I just thought, where's Gabby? I need Gabby. Uh, And so she could, those nice chicken eggs that she brings us. And so there's just some things like you just have to wait for. 
And waiting on this baby boy to be born took thousands and thousands of years. And this wait, it actually became the theme of the entire Old Testament. So that's what I want to do tonight. I want to read the entire Old Testament so we can see this. No, I'm kidding. I just want us to to look at these chapters as we just kind of scan the Old Testament. And I think the chapters in the Old Testament could be labeled, is it him? Is this the Christ that we've been waiting for? In Genesis 3, we read that um, a baby boy is coming. And then in the very next chapter, this family tree begins. Look at chapter 4. In chapter 4, Adam and Eve have a baby boy and named him Cain. Now, you, you could just imagine, I believe, like, there's something on Adam and Eve's mind. Like, when they see Cain being born, it's a boy, this promise from God. Like, is this him? Is this the offspring that's going to destroy the serpent? That had to be going through their minds. The Bible doesn't give us too much time, though, to hype up or to build up uh, Cain. Because in the very next verse, in verse 2... We have foreshadowing that Cain was probably not going to be this child. Verse 2 says, And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. So now we have two potential candidates. What made them candidates? Well, because they were boys. And so there's these two candidates to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3. Which one's it going to be? You know, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Is it it Cain or is it Abel? I'm sure that's going through their mind. You know, and and for those of you who are parents, you know, like each kid, like there's certain days they have better days. And so maybe one day they come home and like, it's definitely Cain today. He's probably going to be the promise child. And other days like, it's definitely not Cain. It's going to be Abel. Look at him. Sweet old Abel. Well, if we keep reading, we don't have to get too far in Genesis 4 before we realize that neither Cain Or Abel is the promised child. Cain murders Abel, which eliminates both candidates. Then in the latter half of chapter 4, we see this family tree. And if you look at chapter 4, you just see like lists of names. This is Cain's family. And usually, this is when people begin to ask, well, where did Cain get his wife if it was just Cain and Abel? I don't believe it was just Cain and Abel. Um, I'm, I'm not even confident that Cain was the first child of Eve. He was just the first male child of Eve. Remember, the Old Testament is not this exhaustive, detailed report of human history. It is interested in finding the child of Genesis 3, and this search begins with this outline or, or flow. It goes all throughout the Old Testament. This is why we don't see too many females in the Old Testament. This is why the Old Testament is dominated mostly with men. Some people think, well, that's because God is sexist. He doesn't like men, or he doesn't like women. God's not playing favorites with guys. Genesis 1 informs us that both genders are created in his likeness after his own image. But a purpose of the Old Testament is to show the reader that God is faithful to his promises. And the promise in Genesis 3 greatly shapes the entire Old Testament. So we have Cain's family lineage listed in Genesis 4, all throughout Genesis, the latter half of Genesis 4, which is a list of boys who might be the promised child, each one. Is it him? Is it him? Is it him? But right at the end of chapter 4, verse 25 says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. 
For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring, same word, instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So now it seems like the tension has shift off of Cain, off of Abel, and now onto this baby boy named Seth. Maybe Seth is that baby boy. Well, it turns out he isn't the child either. And then Genesis 5, we see another list of names. And this is now, now it's Seth's turn. So this is Seth's family tree. You can just see it in Genesis 5. What's missing from this list? All the names of girls. Every few verses we will read, and so and so had other sons and daughters. So, I mean, we see that there's women there, but they're not mentioned by name. Was it because they were less important? Not at all. It was simply because knowing the names of baby girls would not help us solve the mystery set in Genesis 3. That's the aim of the Old Testament. It's to show us who is this child. And Genesis 5 alone covers over a 1,000 years. I mean, Seth lived to be 912 years. That's a pretty long life, right, kids? And then you add a few more great, 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 great in there, and you get to a guy named Methuselah. Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. He's the oldest recorded person in the Bible. Chapter 5 looks like if you take a remote and you just hold down fast forward, that's what chapter 5 looks like. It's just fast forwarding through history. And so you hit play again, and you get to Genesis 6. The story slows down. We get to Noah. It forces the reader to ask, is this the baby boy? Well, Noah was, he was righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. Noah was known to walk with God. This sounds like maybe he's a qualified candidate. Surely this is the child. I mean, he's righteous, blameless, walk with God. He has five chapters dedicated to just Noah. But if we keep reading, we will soon find out that Noah, he's kind of a disappointment. He started out really strong. But the last years of his life proved that Noah was not the boy that was going to redeem the world from the serpent. Well, guess what comes in the very next chapter? Again, chapter 11, it's another long list. You just hold in, fast forward, fast forward, fast forward, fast forward from Noah. And then it just slows down. They hit play again on a guy named Abram. You may know him as Abraham. Well, he's another special young man. Maybe Abram's the one. I mean, this boy Abram, we quickly see that he's special, he's unique. In Genesis 12, verse 2, God tells Abram, and I will make you a great nation. That's pretty cool. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Okay. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Wow, okay. This sounds like a pretty promising candidate. A little later in this chapter, God tells Abram, who at that time, he and his wife had zero children, and they were much older in age. He says, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. 
Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and, it, and he counted to him as righteousness. So here's another righteous boy. This, maybe, this could be the promised child. Maybe this is why we gather for Christmas. But if we keep reading, yes, there's many moments to celebrate Abram, but overall his life did not match up to the kind of man who would defeat the serpent. So we're left like waiting again, waiting and waiting. But from this point moving forward, because of the promise made to Abram that he's going to be made great among all nations, we now just keep following his family tree. So we know that he's somebody special. We read about Abram's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob, but Isaac was too much like his father, and Jacob was not enough like his father, and so we're still left to our search. Well, there's good news with Jacob's story. He had 12 sons, so that's 12 candidates that would give him more opportunities of maybe this child belongs to him. The more children you have, the better chance that one of those kids could be the Messiah, the Christ. This was the reason why, one, uh, why God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Because this child was coming to redeem the world. So Jacob has 12 sons. He loved them all, but, you know, he really liked this one better than uh, you could say the rest. Uh, Kids, you maybe accuse your mom and dad of playing favorites, and and your parents will always deny it. And, well, Jacob didn't deny it. He owned it. Uh, Jacob's favorite son was Joseph. He was so special that the rest of the brothers knew that their dad loved him the most. And many of them despised Joseph for this. He was special. He was unique. And like all the other canons we've read about so far in the Bible, the Bible never mentions any sin about Joseph's life. So maybe this could be the child. But the story of Joseph ends without him fulfilling the promise of Genesis 3. So the Bible quickly moves on. It's just like, next man up, who's next? The Bible quickly jumps to a boy named Moses. Now, Moses' birth foreshadows his importance. If you remember that story, God protects him from the genocide of other Hebrew babies, uh, showing us that this child is unique. He's worth saving. But even before he leads the nation of Israel to do some incredible things, he just doesn't seem to be the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 3. He doesn't have a great start. He has a much better, you know, those middle years for him are much better And then he has some bumps at the end of his life. So thousands of years have gone by since God made the promise to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent, and we still have zero qualified candidates. So the Bible continues to focus on baby boys. Moses' predecessor is a guy named Joshua. Joshua's name literally means God is deliverance. So maybe this is him. He's going to be the one that delivers us from the serpent. Joshua's best known for leading God's people into the land of Canaan. Canaan was meant to be a place of rest, but I don't think they would describe their lives as restful. So Joshua never provides the deliverance that his name might suggest. And then we come to a bunch of other leaders called judges. The judges come prior to Israel having any kings. And though these judges time and time again delivered Israel From physical bondage, none of them delivered the promises of Genesis 3. Well, during this time, the Israelites began to look around at other nations. They began to go, look, that nation has kings. 
We want to be like that nation. And so the people of God began to beg God to give them a king. But maybe this was God's plan after all. Maybe this promised child, this child of redemption, would actually one day be a king. So God gives Israel a king, and the story slows down yet again. When we get to the first king, the king comes from great wealth. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, and from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Those statements have never been said about me. So God gives Israel a king. Uh, and you know these attributes, wealthy, good-looking, tall, were not the qualifications of being Messiah. King Saul started out as a decent king, but the wills quickly came off, and humanity is in search yet again. Well, the next king comes along, and he's described as a man after God's own heart. Well, this seems kind of promising. He's also the son of Abraham, so he checks off another box of potential savior. And for the most of King David's life, he's this incredible leader. Even still today, King David is known as the greatest king in the history of Israel. And with all the great things he accomplished, he is also known for some really low, embarrassing moments, moments of adultery and murder. Possibly one of the closest candidates we have seen fulfilling Genesis 3, but at the end of the day, he just wasn't the guy. David had many sons, but one son in particular was a guy named Solomon. Solomon is known to be the wisest man who's ever lived. Surely being the wisest man who's ever lived should produce a level of righteousness. He should know what, you know, and discern what decisions he should make. However, it seemed like his wisdom produced more pride than it did righteousness because Solomon, just like his father, is known for being a man of moral failure. Now, somewhere around 3,000 years have gone by since God first made that promise in the garden about sending a male offspring. What's the longest you've ever had to wait for something? I, I know the anticipation of a child waiting almost the entire month of December to unwrap presents may seem like 3,000 years. So, like, what emotions do you experience when you're just waiting and waiting and waiting? I'm, I'm guessing the Israelites, there's this sense of, like, hopelessness, abandonment. God, God, where are you? I thought you said. Maybe even bitterness. I'm sure many over that time had lost hope. I'm sure many didn't think God would or could keep his promise. Famines, disease, and wars made it look like evil would prevail. And maybe when God's people began to lose hope, God, it seemed like he continued to give more detail about this promised child. Maybe to give them some hope and not to lose heart. Promises like the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Be looking through the tribe of Judah. He would be a descendant of King David. He was to be born at Bethlehem. He would arrive before the destruction of the second temple. The Messiah would present himself by riding on a donkey. The Messiah would be tortured to death. These are all promises that the Old Testament make about the coming Messiah. Even though it has been 3,000 years, it's not like God had forgotten or that he had never spoke about the promised child. So why all the waiting? Well, the most simplest answer is it just wasn't the right time. 
But when the fullness of time had come, Galatians 4 informs us that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. After almost 4,000 years of waiting and waiting and waiting, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In Luke 3, we see a list of baby boy names, similar to the list in Genesis 5, Genesis 11. Luke 3 is basically holding down fast forward on the entire Old Testament from Adam all the way to Jesus. And we can look at that list and we can easily say, that's not you, it's not you, you're not the one, nope, you can't cut it. It's a long list of guys whose lives just didn't measure up. Luke is making sure that you can see that the lineage of Jesus can be traced all the way back to Genesis 3. He is the one. He has arrived. He has come. And so we celebrate the Christ child tonight. So we've been walking through Advent this last several weeks, and we come to the Christ candle, a candle of purity. It's just a test to see if you be patient and wait. And so we light the Christ candle, that Christ is pure. He is our sinless Savior. He was willing to leave his throne and come to a manger so that you and I could have peace with a holy God. Romans 1 reminds us that God's wrath was waiting to be poured out upon us. But because of his kindness, his mercy, he sent Christ to die in our place so that for those who trust in Christ, we could be with God forever and ever and have peace with our Heavenly Father. Peace with God was not obtained through his coming, his advent. It was obtained through his death and resurrection. Because of the initial rebellion in the garden, because of our own rebelling against a holy God, God requires bloodshed as an atonement. So Jesus stood in our place so that your sin did not lead to your death, but to his. And so tonight, we're going to take some time and reflect on his coming and his death by celebrating the Lord's Supper. So if you're a guest with us, um, we, uh, if you are a follower of Christ, you trust in him, then we want to invite you to come and participate in the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so we have a couple stations, and you'll see a couple trays. One will have the bread. The bread... Christ, when he's gathered on the Passover meal with his disciples, sitting around a table with his disciples, he, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. Take and eat. And then the other, the other uh, element you'll see is a little cup that represents his blood. Jesus said that his blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And so tonight, we invite you to come and remember why we celebrate Christmas. It's not about getting a bunch of gifts and being with family. Those things are great, but that's not the point of Christmas. It's to remember what Christ has done for us, that he laid down his life, that he did something that none of us could do, that he is the promised child of Genesis 3, that he crushed, he defeated the serpent. And so now he rules and reigns from heaven above, watching over us. And so we come 
tonight celebrating Lord's Supper. So whenever you're ready, you come and you just take the bread and take a cup, take it back to your seat, and when you're ready, you take of the Lord's Supper. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for sending your very best to do something that none of us could do to save mankind. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming, for laying down your life, dying in our place. And Lord, may we just celebrate who you are. May we... May our hearts be ready to come and take of the table, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Whenever you're ready, you, you come.